Hello, my name is Jacob Fenston. Welcome to this podcast produced by the International Monetary Fund. Over the past several decades, advanced economies, especially the United States, have seen a striking rise in inequality. For example, in the U.S., the top 0.1% of households receive about 10% of national income. That's more than double the figure of 30 years ago. Economist David Otter argues that trend is driven by rapidly developing technology, which has made more highly educated workers much more valuable while pushing others out of jobs. I began our conversation by asking why inequality matters. Well, I think for a long time, economists would say it doesn't matter that much. It's interesting to understand it, but it doesn't, we don't have strong feelings about it. Many people say, well, you need some inequality. You need inequality to provide incentives. If you don't have incentives, people won't work hard, et cetera. And how much is too much inequality? Well, who knows? I think that view has started to change over the last 10 years or so. The uh, Chief Justice uh, of the Supreme Court once famously said, I don't know what pornography is, but I know it when I see it. And I think many economists at this point are saying, I don't know what too much inequality is, but it looks like we might have it. I think the reason to be concerned about it, the reasons that I'm concerned about it, are the risk that too much inequality at present, although it creates you know, great incentives for working hard and investing and so on, can create a society that's ultimately more dynastic, meaning that the income of the household that you're born into has a great effect on the, uh, your life chances. And that occurs because inequality affects not just material consumption, but access to good schools, investment in children, ability to, you know, getting a child into uh, all the way through college, a good college and so on, requires, you know, uh, almost two decades of investment. And not all, not all households can make that. And so I don't have strong feelings about inequality of income at present as long as people aren't destitute, but I worry very much that, it, that rising inequality of income will reduce economic mobility in the next generation. Can you talk a bit about, um, it's not just economists who have been more concerned about inequality. It's been a lot in the popular uh, imagination. It's been in the news. So this is obviously something that, that, that people are thinking about right now. Can you sort of quantify for me how much has inequality really risen? So starting in the early 1980s, um, economists observed that the return to education was rising. In other words, the inequality between college and non-college workers. And, and it rose a lot. I would say over the last 25 years, it's, it's roughly doubled the college-high school wage differential. So that's one common measure of inequality. And in the U.S., that's corresponded not with just a rise in the incomes of college workers, but actually with a real decline in the earnings of non-college workers, especially non-college males. So it's not simply that some groups are doing well and some are doing very well. It's that some groups are doing pretty well and some groups are doing pretty badly. So that's one reason to be concerned. Another fact that has really captured the popular imagination uh, is due to the work of Emmanuel Says of, of UC Berkeley and Thomas Piketty of uh, INSEE in France. They have looked at concentration of top earnings using tax records, and you can see the change in the share of, of national income accruing to the top 10% or 1% or 0.1% of households, and that has just risen astronomically since the late 1970s and rather continuously at that. So at this point, um, the top 10% of households account for more than 50% of all national income. 
and the top 0.1% of households account for about 10% of national income. And that's, um, that's more than a doubling of what it was uh, 30 years earlier. In many, many advanced countries, there has been rising income concentration. But the U.S. is, is by far and away the, the extreme. Why is that, that the return on education is rising? In other words, that sort of the value of, of what you'll get for an education in terms of, of increased wages and such. Why has that been changing? There are a few factors. You know, the demand for skilled labor has been rising for, as far as we can measure it, at least 90 years, probably more. And it's not hard to understand why in, in broad terms, because society has become increasingly dependent upon engineers, among, on scientists, among people who can read and write, communicate. Many of the kind of labor-intensive tasks of 100 years ago in farming, in repetitive production activities, even in labor-intensive artisanal activities, have now been uh, supplanted by technologies. Whereas the importance of creativity, of analytical capability, of creating new technologies and solving problems, all these things have become more essential to the things that we don't, that we can't actually automate, the things that we uh, require humans to do. What has changed, actually, the, the biggest factor, this is one that's not often talked about, but it's widely understood among economists, is that there was actually a, a slowdown in the supply of highly educated labor. So what kind of spurred the very rapid rise in the return to education in the 1980s was this deceleration in supply. It's not that there were not more college graduates, it's that they were growing much more slowly than they used to, whereas demand was rising rather steadily. And related to that is the idea of, of employment polarization. People at the bottom are, are earning less while people at the top are earning more. Can you, can you explain what we're talking about when we're talking about that polarization? The term employment polarization refers to the sort of simultaneous growth of high wage, high education, high skill occupations, and low wage, low education, you know, low skill in conventional terms occupations at the expense of the middle. And so when many people think of sort of technological progress, they sort of think it's all onward and upward. The top is rising, the middle is rising, the bottom is falling. You know, you're sort of the increase in demand for skill is everywhere. And so that you would tend to think, well, we'd be doing less and less drudge work and more and more office work and more and more, you know, thinking for a living. But in fact, a lot of the drudge work, so to speak, is sticking around. So think about driving vehicles, if you think about cleaning, if you think about food service, personal care, these are all things that require... Uh, flexibility, adaptability, sightedness, uh, language, um, and uh, visual recognition, problems that have proved extremely hard uh, for computer science. They've just turned out to be much harder to automate than anyone had expected. You know, we just don't have domestic robots. We have great computer chess players. We have Google for searching for information, but we do not have the domestic robots from Woody Allen's Sleeper who, you know, sort of meet us at the door and, you know, give us uh, food and toys to play with. Those jobs have, have stuck around and grown. And it also deserves uh, emphasis that those jobs are very difficult to trade internationally, the, those activities, because they often require in-person interactions. So they're not very susceptible to technological advance. They're not very susceptible to trade, which means a lot of labor is absorbed in those activities, and that's okay. Uh, but because the skills used are very generic, it means they tend not to be high-wage jobs. There's a lot of people who can potentially do them. On the other hand, manufacturing employment has declined substantially for two reasons, one being automation. There's just a, you know, a lot less labor used in manufacturing than when it's done domestically because people increasingly tend sophisticated machinery rather than doing you know, kind of hand assembly. 
Uh, and two, trade, uh, growing trade penetration with the developing world, particularly China, has reduced employment in a lot of labor-intensive U.S. manufacturing, textiles and footwear, assembly, things like that. At the same time, computerization has substantially reduced employment in clerical administrative support occupations. So when you think of production and operative positions and clerical administrative support, those are kind of the, the kind of the good career middle wage jobs, right, for people who have high school or some college education, maybe a college education, but they weren't top flight executive jobs, but they often had some employment stability. You had skills that were specific to your employer. Uh, you mastered technologies and techniques and knowledge that was specific to that firm. Those offered, you know, the kind of many of them would be sort of middle class-ish jobs. So the polarization, I think people find concerning, rightly so, because, it, you know, there's this elite strata of jobs that are, you know, great jobs to have. If you're not in them, the, there may be fewer rungs in the ladder in between that and the bottom. These changes are driven by things that are, are very big forces, growing international trade or technology, sort of unstoppable forces in a way. Uh, so what's the proper policy response? I mean, I, there are very few people who are willing to say we should try to stop technology. You could try. More people will say we should try to stop trade. Uh, I don't support that. But what you would want to do, I think, is you would want to, if you want to realize the benefits from these things, you might also want to help ensure some of the losers against the losses. If the net benefit is positive, but some people are distinctly worse off, you would say, well, we're going to provide job training. We're going to provide some level of income security, some level of assurance of ongoing health care coverage. Arguably, a, a country that has where the social safety net is somewhat more expansive is one where people would be less fearful about adaptation because the personal cost they bear might be smaller. Now, should we be smashing technology? No. Should we recognize that there are people whose livelihoods are harmed by technological advances? Yes, we should recognize that. For most people, their wealth is tied up in the value of their human capital, right? That's their most valuable asset. If all of a sudden the human capital that you possess is no longer scarce, in other words, you can just do whatever you could do, we can now do for 25 cents uh, with an iPhone app. That may be good for the world in net, but it certainly isn't good for your earnings potential. So it's not a mistake to recognize that technological change can create winners and losers. It's a mistake to fight technological change, in my opinion, to, to stop it, but it, it's not incorrect to want to channel it or figure out a way at least to channel your prosperity. That was David Otter of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology on the link between technology, education, and inequality. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit us online at www.imf.org slash podcasts.